Making contact with the target in the field requires a complex orchestration of operatives on the ground. We create a reality around them that would seem like an everyday scenario in order to get in and obtain the information we need. In order for this to all work, every part of the team has to be in perfect synchronization. Today, I'll be talking with my son Harrison and daughter Amy about the inner workings of one specific operation to make contact with the perpetrator of a 12-year-long stalking case. Later on, I'll share my own story of what it was like being the focus of this type of obsessive behavior myself. From Storic Media, you're listening to Codename Siren, a true crime podcast with Nina Hobson. When you did that job the other week on the stalker case and the comms went down, what were you thinking? Because all I got, obviously, was you shouting at me in the end, Harrison. But Do you want my honest first thought? Your honest first thought would be real good. <laughs> I knew for a fact, as soon as you couldn't hear what I was saying, I knew you were instantly going to turn into a, a psycho, crazy person because you couldn't hear me. And that's exactly what happened. But isn't that because I care and I was worried about you? But bear in mind, Nina Hobson was informed at the time before it went down that she's not going to be able to hear what I say because my microphone doesn't work. So before I even got out of the car, she knew she wasn't going to be able to hear me. Then when she asked me to say something and Amy goes, Harrison can't talk, you know his thing doesn't work. And she just starts yelling at me because she can't hear me. Oh, it makes me so mad. <laughs> I couldn't hear that conversation. No one told me that they were, because I gave you mine, didn't yeah, I? Yeah, and you you gave me your earpiece and said, the microphone doesn't work. I know it's mine. You are, I won't be able to hear you. That's right. <laughs> okay, can we just someone, this is recording, right? Because that might be the first time that mom just owned up to one of her mistakes. <laughs> so can we keep that clip for future? Just use? that one sentence where she goes, oh, you're sentence. right. That's my fault. Going back to that job, so that's the first job that you two are the actual operatives on the ground and the surveillance team. We were all in vehicles, right? Was anyone, no one else was on the ground, right? Judy. Judy. Yeah. For me, that was a big thing because you two are the, the key players, so to speak. And what did you feel like though, Harrison? Because obviously you were now in a position where you were the only, well, both of you, you had each other's backs. Well, I was more dependent on Harrison if something went wrong because, firstly, I was tasked with running around the neighborhood. So after about 10 seconds of running, I was out. That was going to be no help to anyone because I could barely breathe. And also, Harrison was the only muscle around. So really, if something had happened, he was kind of the first. But it was boiling hot and I was told to put a sweater on. I think it's because I had already walked past. That's right. We had to change. Doing some th something else. So I had to change my attire. So I had to put my hair up because before I had it down, I was in different shirt. So then I had to cover my shirt. And the only thing we had was a thick black sweater. So I'm running around the neighborhood at like 85 degrees in a thick sweater. So there were so many reasons I could have died. Nothing to do with the target. <laughs> <laughs> but Harrison, we established other than the fact that Amy's 
boiling to death because she's in a sweater. I'm actually pretty fit, by the way. I'd like to yeah, add that. Fit. I'm not like, you, of you course know, you're fit. unhealthily. Okay. You're very fit. What's it like knowing that you were looking after your sister? Or did that even cross your mind? I don't know. I kind of thought that she was checking up to make sure I was doing all right because I was in front of the house looking at the house and she was across the street looking at me. You thought she was my eyes seeing if you'd done your job. Yeah. That's in- that's interesting for me that you didn't at any point think, because obviously at one point, probably when the comms went down, my adrenaline was going. And I know that Judy, when she went to the door, everybody was at that tense moment because we didn't know if this crazy guy was going to come out. I, don't, I think it makes it better and easier being my sister. Like with Harrison, we laugh and joke about stuff. So anytime I, I ran past him and anytime we made eye contact, uh, you almost like want to laugh. I think it's because he knows that I'm dying running around this neighborhood. Whereas with if it was... Dre or a different operative, I would be like very seriously running. But I think that's why, because it doesn't seem as scary to me with Harrison. I'm more comfortable in any situation around Amy than I am with any other person that I could ever possibly come across. So obviously being in a, in a, in a tense and hostile environment with her is going to keep the adrenaline and the nerves or like anything like that at bay more than say I'm out there with Dre or some shit like that. So you basically have each other's backs. Yeah. So let's let's go to that job then. So that's a and still is a pain in the ass job because the target is incredibly smart but also incredibly dangerous and that's why we have to find him. So that particular job was a stalker and he had stalked his victim for 12 years, had left America and gone back to the country of origin where he's from and then continued to stalk the victim while he was out of the country by false identity, internet. She had to actually become totally off any social media, any internet at all because wherever she went, he went too. I guess her saving grace for that time period was that she knew he was out of the country for that short period of time, and then he came back. And when he came back, he made it very clear, not direct contact to her, but through her associates, that he was back and he's come back to finish the business off. Now, that was what he told her best friend. And the HR of her new company. Like, he contacted people that he would never even have known, but then they told her, oh, we got this email about you and this, that, and the other. So he was making every which way to contact her without directly contacting her. That's when, so we had to pretext a setup to meet the guy. Because we were trying to find if the address that we had for him, if he still lived there or if he was living with someone else. Right. That he was pretending to be. Right. Because he'd stolen the identity of the Beverly Hills guy. And so... Uh, the day that you guys went out was the day that we faked that he'd ordered groceries online because we had to have a reason to go to his door. And one of the operatives was a fake Instacart or whatever it's called. Um, so then Harrison and Amy, you guys were on the street and we had to have a reason for you guys being on the street because it looked really odd. So you actually, 
you were you were kind of were looking at Harrison and yeah. Harrison was kind of the the protection for Judy, Judy going to the door. So the reason that Amy was unfortunately running round was because we have to have a reason for her to be in the area continually. So you were basically a jogger. Yeah. You were out I running. I had my headphones in. And- headphones, which was your comms, and it allowed you to keep walk- going around the same area. Um, and Harrison, I think you were uh, just on your phone, right? You were outside. Yeah, I was just on a phone call. Just walking past. And that's the beauty of the comms because you look like you're like every other person in the world's got their earpods in. And um, so that, but that was why you were running around because we wanted Harrison to keep eyes on Judy all the time. So he had to be static. Literally, we, it had to be timed perfectly. Like Harrison had to walk past the door right as Judy got there. And then right as Harrison got there, I had to stop and tie up my shoelace yep. so that I was also in the same line. Hence why the jogging, a lot of jogging <laughs> happened because it had to work out perfectly that we were all in exactly the right spot at the right time. Yeah. Like it's really down to a science of how you move into position. The objective was to identify him and locate him so that we knew his home address because he had been using lots of different addresses and lots of different identities. So we had to, we had to, what we call home him, make sure that that's where he lived. And actually, um, that wasn't him when we got to that house. And the guy tried to keep the Instacart order. Yeah. (laughs) Wasn't even his fucking order. He was like, can I have the wine out of that, please? Like, do you have to tell someone? So then Judy called, had to call one of us to make it look like she was calling Instacart to say like, oh, this is the, this is an incorrect order. Is the person allowed to keep the food? Because he was like, can you call someone and ask if I can keep it? So then she knew that you were running the operation and she didn't, she knew that Harrison was her her eyes so she called me so then I had to run really fast out of the line of sight so it didn't look like I was the one on the phone with her and then she was like you're on speaker and this gentleman would like to keep the wine out of this and I was like oh no sorry yeah. it's against it's policy against policy you we have to return it because it was an incorrect person has already paid for it blah blah blah, blah. so then she left but that was hilarious yeah. that he was trying to like barter with her to keep the groceries. And that's that's like the little things like, okay, well that's gonna happen. We're we're all pretending that we're somebody else, so we've got to keep that pretense. So um yeah, when she she rang you. It was the address that was in our target's name. Yes. But so we were trying to figure out if he actually lived there or if he was renting it out and was living somewhere else. So he must have rented it to this guy. Yeah. He was very willing to give us his ID. Because that, uh, that was the other thing. Yeah. You've got to get his ID. Because there was alcohol in the order. And that was the excuse. So we had to take a bottle of alcohol in order to say, we need ID because there's alcohol in the order. Now, thankfully, he gave us the ID willingly and it wasn't the guy, our guy. Yeah. And, and Judy spoke to him about living there and... So then we were back at square one. So then the next or the next couple of days, we had to set up a false meeting with this guy. So we had 
by what we call a pretext, had arranged to meet him in a cafe at two o'clock in the afternoon. We knew he was out of work and he's in a very specialized field. Only a few of them do what he does. So we knew that he didn't have a job here and he was out of money from what he told other people. So we set it up as a a job interview for potential work because we knew that that was something that he needed. Bearing in mind, we haven't got a picture of this guy at this point. So we don't know who it is we're actually able to ID, which makes it a whole whole different ball game because we've set up a meeting and every single person, the surveillance team has set up hours before the meeting in order to make sure that we've all got the right spots, that we've all got good vision. Harrison and Amy, they were going into the restaurant together, together at a table. And then obviously any lone person who came in around the time that we'd set up this meeting, we had to try and identify and confirm whether it was our target. So it was really, really complicated. And you guys were in there and there was this guy and he fit the description of what our victim had told us. but. He sat at a, a table behind you. I could yes. see him. Amy couldn't. And then so they, they were relaying to me that there's a guy in the restaurant. We think it's him. Fits the description. So I then left my surveillance vehicle, went into the restaurant and sat at the table next to him because these guys were talking me through what was happening in the restaurant and I engaged in conversation with him by his food was delivered and I was like, oh, that looks nice. What is it? And then he and I started, oh, you're English. Yeah, that's right. Oh, where are you from in England? And then we engaged in conversation so I could ask him enough questions to establish whether it was our target or not. And it wasn't. So then I had to quickly excuse myself. she got a date out of it. <laughs> she did not get a date. He asked her on a date. I'm pretty sure he did. <laughs> I'm like, I'm in work mode and I'm like, I have to, okay, you're not our guy. Our guy could be in here right now. So I've got to extract myself very quickly and not really be interested in sitting down and having the same food as him. And so that I could get back to my position and these guys could get back to waiting for our target. So the the small detail is really really important. We don't know what will trigger him. So for 12 years, he has followed and harassed his victim. And he's having a massive effect on his target's life because he knows everything about her, her every move. And she lost a very close friend. And he knew when the memorial service was being held. And so made it known via her associates that he would be at the memorial service and she was so frightened and actually on our advice didn't go to the service which is really sad because it was a very close friend but the reason that we didn't want her to go was a if he was going to be there and do something awful it would have just been a ridiculous cost for manpower to cover that and secondly we didn't know whether he would be hiding somewhere in order to follow her home or whether he's just waiting to get her car number plate anything at all so despite all of the efforts and hours and hours of work that have gone into this we haven't located him we haven't had eyes on him we won't stop until we do because we have a very traumatized victim that's also part of the job like sometimes it takes a lot longer than what we would hope 
yeah. for or assume. So that kind of goes with the territory. It's like it's not always a happy ending, right. unfortunately. We'll get him eventually, but it is, it is a lot harder because he doesn't have many associates. Like he really isolates himself and is such a loner. He reaches out to a lot of people, but only makes one or two interactions with them just so it's known that he knows who they are and how they relate to her. And then it's done with. Like, he doesn't keep relationships with people. They can only tell us, like, oh, we got this one email or we got this two text messages. And then that's the end of their contact and he moves on to the next person. So it's kind of a wild, a bit more of a wild goose chase for us because... We have to go through all the associates rather than, oh, this one person he talks to every single day. And that's basically the only trail we have until we find another one. So he is really smart and he's also a very smart um, technical person. So it's a very, it's a lot harder than a normal, I guess there's no normal stalker case. But usually for a stalker, they get more communicative because they want a response. Whereas this guy is very happy just to send one email to HR and then one email to her neighbor. So we kind of almost have to wait for him to come back around. We did a security assessment at her house, cameras, etc. He's never been to her house, but we don't know whether one day he will. And it could literally be the worst case scenario in this particular case. He's a very interesting character in the sense of his behavior so we don't know what if will push him over the edge so we have to work as if tomorrow today could be the day there are several different factors that can motivate a stalker in my case i became a victim after arresting a man for that very crime Back in 2005, I was working as a police officer in the UK when I arrested a man for harassing a woman that worked at the Office for Government Assistance. He had become obsessed with the young lady that he had to see weekly to get his benefit check. The interesting thing about this man was that he wasn't your average street criminal. He was a very accomplished and intelligent man, well-educated and worked as a lecturer. It turns out that he recently had a psychotic breakdown, and that's when his behavior took an obsessive turn. At this point, I knew that he was exhibiting this type of behavior, but I didn't expect that while I was attempting to help the man, this deranged focus would now be cast on me. It started out with him sending letters addressed to me at the police station. Every time it was 30 pages of a disturbing narrative that started out romantic and developed into his plan to brutally murder and dismember me. He would write me letters every day for months, and even gave us names in the story. He was the scarecrow, and I was the gypsy girl. I was scared to say the least, and wondered what it was that caused me to become the focal point of this man's obsession. As this behaviour persisted, I grew increasingly concerned, and I made the decision to tell my supervisors. Initially, they didn't take it at all seriously, though as he persisted, they did eventually arrest the man. At the time, stalking and harassment wasn't considered a serious crime in the UK. The law would eventually change after a stalker walked into a shop in London and killed his victim. Unfortunately, in my case, because of the nature of his behaviour, 
My supervisors were concerned that having another officer interview him would put them at risk of becoming his new obsession. Because of this, I had to conduct the interview myself. Their logic was that he had a fondness for me, so he may give up more information and we wouldn't be putting one of my fellow officers in harm's way. That was a very scary moment for me, and one of the only times I kept my body armour on during an interview. The department wasn't willing to take any action based on threatening letters, so he was released. He then upped the ante and started sending me gifts. At first he sent me lingerie, an engagement ring, and a fake firearm. Eventually things got more disturbing. He sent me acid, and then the next day, fake human skin. The messaging was always manic. One day the implication was to marry me, and the next was to kill me. This man was truly unhinged. I eventually had to come out of uniform because he was communicating to me that he knew my daily routine. I took measures to change up my schedule, parked in different places so that he wasn't able to track me. Until one day, he walked into the BBC and told the receptionist to send a journalist to follow him while he killed PC Hobson. The receptionist was able to stall the man, called the police, and he was arrested. They brought him to the police station, and despite the fact that the department was finally taking the case seriously, because of the risk to other officers, I had to yet again interview this man. This time, the stakes were much higher, as he had just threatened to kill me. Needless to say, I was terrified. At this point, the charges stuck, and he was sent to prison while we were putting the case together. We then got a warrant on his house, and we entered it. It was like something out of a horror movie. He had created an entire shrine to me, made of photos he had taken of me in daily life that I was completely unaware of. Looking back, it was a mistake for me to go along for this, because seeing the actual evidence made it more apparent that this man was completely obsessed with me. It suddenly became very real. He was serving his prison sentence, and because of the nature of his crime, he was not allowed to have any mode of writing letters. So in theory, the threat should stop. What we later found out was that he bartered with another inmate to get a pen and was able to use pages of the Bible to write letters to me. I began to once again receive the same kind of letters addressed to me at the police station. At one point during the hearing, while the judge was explaining that there wasn't much they could do, considering the man was already locked up, and it wasn't like he tried to kill me, he stood up and very matter-of-factly explained that the only reason he hadn't killed me yet was because he was locked up and couldn't physically get to me. It was chilling to hear him so casually explain what he ultimately planned to do with me. However, divulging this in front of an entire courtroom would be enough to keep him locked up for the time being. Unfortunately, in 2007, I was notified that he was being released after two and a half years of his five-year sentence. One night after I'd left the police force, I was in my home in a village about three hours away from where this had all happened. I lived in a quiet, family-orientated neighbourhood and always felt very safe. I normally never felt the need to lock my doors. But for some reason, whether subconsciously I was being cautious as my stalker was recently let out of prison, or just the fact that I was home with my kids in the evening alone, I locked my door. 
My back was turned and I was cutting watermelon. Before I even reacted to someone trying the door handle, Sully, my big lovable English sheepdog, ran down the stairs and threw himself at the kitchen door. As I turned around, knife in hand, with only a window separating us, I was face to face with the scarecrow. As I stood there, terrified, holding a giant butcher knife while my dog displayed a level of aggression I had no idea he was even capable of. We locked eyes for a moment and he disappeared. My husband at the time was a cop on duty, so I immediately rang him and he and his crewmate came and searched the area, but he had already fled. I can't help but come to the conclusion that if I hadn't locked the door that night, I probably wouldn't be here to tell the story. Despite the fact that I live thousands of miles away now, the image of this man still haunts me. We know now that most stalkers are motivated by the fear they instill in their victims and the attention they get from making their presence known. It's unclear in many cases whether they actually believe they have a connection with the people they obsess over or if they just intend to intimidate. There's no singular way of dealing with these types of criminals, but we do know that as long as they're given the validation that they crave, they'll continue to terrorise their victims. Join me next week. I'll be talking to CSI New York writer Adam Targum about his experience on the ground with me and my team investigating the very criminals he writes about every day. Until next time, I'm Nina Hobson, and this has been Codename Siren. <laughs>